Welcome to the Old Galway Diary podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Thank you. A cold, frosty morning in Galway. I don't know what it's like in the wilds of Barna. My goodness. You do live the out sun, in the wilderness out there. The sun is shining in Barna. Please. <laughs> Why did you need to ask? It's a beautiful morning. It's November. Uh, yeah. And it's a beautiful November morning. I know it is. And I'm reminded of the uh, the Christmas toy shows on, on Friday. And to me, that is the start of Christmas, really. So I'd have to start getting my thinking cap on to know what yes, to buy. You know what I mean, yeah. but it's, um, yeah. that time of year. But it's beautiful weather and it's just perfect. <laughs> really. It's lovely. I hope it continues. Anyway, Tom, how are things? This, what are you going to write about this week? I am writing about the Railway Hotel Act, as known as the Great Southern or the Mernick, or today known as the Hardyman Hotel. And the reason I'm writing about this is because the indefatigable Willie Henry is bringing out a book on Thursday, on the day of the advertiser, uh, which is an illustrated history of the hotel. Good man, Willie. Yeah, absolutely, and it's fascinating. Writer of history and events, isn't he? He really is a wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all of three weeks since he last put out brought out a book. Oh, I mean, no. forgot. I know. know, I know. But it is he. He is wonderful. He's like a machine. He really is yeah. extraordinary. And He's a great guy. He has greatly yeah. enriched our interest and totally. uh, levels of knowledge in our local history as well. <clears throat> and he does exactly that in this case as well. The site on which the hotel was built was in the 13th century, a convent owned by the Knights Templars, if you don't mind. That's going a very long, long way back. Uh, they were eventually suppressed. And uh, by the 17th century, a man called Robert Martin had a very large house on the site. Uh, this was taken from him by the Cromwellians and giving given to a man called Edward Eyre, a Cromwellian. And, of course, the Eyre family held on to the property and, uh, you know, became a very major factor in Galway life. Uh, in 1712, Edward Eyre, who was the son of the Cromwellian, <clears throat> he presented the land in front of the house to the corporation as a place of recreation for the people of Galway. And uh, of course, it's been known as Air Square more or less ever since. Uh, yeah, and it was a very generous thing to do, actually, even then. Um, by 1827, there was a man called Atkinson uh, living in this big house. And uh, then in 1845, it was a block of tenements. Uh, and these were owned by Father Daly. The, the reverend gentleman, very entrepreneurial priest of the world called Peter Daly. <clears throat> now, as at that time, construction had just begun on a railway line connecting Dublin to Galway. 
And the intention was that the terminus, the Galway terminus, would be at Renmore, where the barracks is today. But Father Daly, he must have been a very persuasive man because he, he certainly convinced... was. I know who you're talking about. <clears throat> yeah. He convinced the railway company to build a bridge <laughs> across Lakatalia, which was no, not a very cheap thing to do, and to bring the line right across and into the city. And uh, he so in order to facilitate that, he evicted all of the tenements in his, sorry, he evicted all the tenants in his tenement. And, uh, and then, by the way, he complained to the authorities that these people had no place to live, having evicted them. Anyway. The tenements were demolished, and so now the site was vacant and open for development. So the hotel was designed by the railway company's architect, a man called Mulvaney, and uh, a man called Dargan was the builder. And he used a lime local limestone in the construction, and uh, it must have been very exciting. Um, can you imagine... Uh, the impact this was going to have on the city. First of all, it was probably the tallest building in the city at the time. It was originally designed as a three-story building over a basement, but in fact, I think it was probably built as four stories. Certainly, the earliest photographs would show four stories. But just imagine the impact of this big, big monumental hotel being built gradually growing higher and higher and higher. And at the same time, the railway line was getting closer and closer and closer. So when these two opened for business, more or less at the same time, it must have made a terrific impact yes. on Galway at the yeah. time. It did. You know, really terrific really impact. Yeah. Tom, in <clears> fact, <throat> bringing the railway into the centre of town was part of Daly's plan for the transatlantic uh, traffic that he was hoping Galway would uh, get a monopoly of. And, it was, uh, exactly, it, exactly it, right, yeah. The yeah. Railway. But because you're that, quite right, to bring the railway across Locatolia was immensely expensive. You had to build oh, this yeah. bridge, you know, right across the, 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 the entrance to the sea there. I mean, it must have been very costly. So it just shows you again, this guy, Father Daly was a very persuasive man. Oh, yeah, he <laughs> certainly was. Well, anyway, yeah. the hotel opened uh, for business in August 1852. Yeah. It had every modern convenience, exceptional accommodation. Uh, it was described as the principal ornament of our ancient town. Yeah. And it had 69 bedrooms, a saloon, which was 50 feet by 24 feet. I presume the saloon would have been the bar. There were four dining rooms, two coffee rooms, uh, classic corridors and galleries at the grand staircase, which I remember actually up uh, this from the center of the hall. And it provided just about every imaginable requirement for comfort at the time and luxury. Uh, and it was it was a remarkable uh, <clears throat> building for its time. Uh, in fact, apparently quite a number of... Uh, hoteliers or would-be hoteliers elsewhere in Europe used plans very similar to the, the railway, as my father always called it, the railway hotel. Um, <clears throat> so that it must have been kind of revolutionary in terms of the design of hotels in the mid-19th century. Anyway, 
the hotel was open for business. It was up and running. Uh, a number of different people leased it over the years. <coughs> Excuse me. And it went on, as I say, different name changes. It was yes. originally known as the Railway Hotel, then the Great Southern, uh, briefly known as the Merrick. And finally, for the last couple of years, it's been called the Hardyman Hotel. And I have no idea how many thousands, indeed millions maybe, of uh, tourists and visit visitors it has accommodated. It has hosted presidents, politicians, personalities, all kinds of sports people, film stars, and great people in Irish history, uh, Parnell, Michael Davitt, William Wilde, Edward VII, King Edward VII. Yeats visited there, as did Charles Lindbergh, Alcock and Brown, Walt Disney, Bing Crosby, Paul McCartney. The list just goes on and on and on. And, and it uh, has become associated with the number of features like the Galway Oyster Festival, for example. Yes, yes. Uh, okay. For many, many years, it was associated with the Hunt Ball. Uh, <laughs> Yes. And all, all of these things that I have mentioned are all in Willie's book, which is called, by the way, The Hardy Man, An Amazing Story. Amazing. And An Amazing Story is what it is. It's, yeah. it's kind of like um, a social history of tourism in Galway over the last 170 years. And yeah. It's about to be launched on Thursday. And uh, it will be available, of course, in all good bookshops and uh it's 25 euro is the price. There are, I have no idea how many illustrations there are, but it's an awful lot. It's profusely <laughs> illustrated and uh, a great addition to every Galwegian's library. But Tom, as I was growing up, and indeed for most of my adult life, the Great Southern Hotel or the Hardiman Hotel was a, was a kind of a centre, wasn't it? All res yes. civic receptions were held there. The... Yeah. Um, the poor uh, city council buildings in Dominic Street were, were not suitable indeed for any kind of civic reception. So the mayor always had civic receptions in the Great Southern Hotel. And it was yeah. the right thing to do because you had, you know, tea and coffee and drinks and stuff like that just at hand. So it really was an important place in the center of town. Um, you know, it had the status and it looked great. It always looked well, I always thought. It did. I agree. You I know, agree. And at Christmas time, they dress it up very nicely. No, it's, it's an yeah. elegant building. Yeah, it's a very fine building. And of course, as you say, the train, the Dublin train, actually slips into the very back of the hotel. And if you're cute enough and you really wanted a drink before you went home in the evening train from Dublin, you could pass right through to the hotel, through the ballroom, into the bar. So <laughs> you didn't yeah. have to go out, exit the station at all. It just came right. through to the hotel. So it was a, it was a really very functional, tourist-orientated hotel. And uh, I'm very glad it's still operating. Uh, yeah. at, at one point, um, it was only the porters from this hotel that were allowed onto the platform of the station. Oh, uh, that was the, all, all the others were denied access to the platform. And so it obviously gave them a major advantage in yeah. attracting tourists into their hotel. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's absolutely so. Oh, yeah, well, that's excellent. And uh, yeah, that, that, that's very, very interesting. It's a hotel that deserves its, its the accolades that you that William Henry has paid. It. Oh, he has. He um, has. As yeah. a 
from the Cromwellian family heir, you know, I found it difficult to accept that the Cromwellians ever gave us anything much but hardship. But maybe, maybe they got softened as time went on and uh, realized that the Galwegians weren't as bad as they were painted out to be. That's all. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. a bit biased. But anyway, no, no, that's great, Tom. I look forward to that. I love that it's well illustrated. I love it. It is, yeah. Photographs. Yeah, I really do. Uh, that, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, listen, I am uh, kind of finishing this section on, on Richard Martin and all the shenanigans of his famous divorce case, his criminal conversation case that was held in London and which was, you know, massively covered in the papers and uh, read with, with, with glee, I would say. I'm afraid that we're all read the stories of divorces of famous people, especially if they're wealthy people. We read, and it's usually given in some detail in some of the papers, not as much now as it, as it was, but the Richard Martin case, of course, was a sensation. And it was um, eagerly consumed page after page after page. And remember, this was still the 18th century, the end of the 18th century. But Martin, as you know, as I said last week, he was going for uh, a sum of money, £20,000, which was several million in today's value. And he was only awarded half of that, 10000 And that really was a slight. And that really reflected that the jury, in fact, did believe that uh, no matter how Martin protested, he had abandoned his wife. Abandoned might be too strong, but he, he just couldn't help it. He was away dealing with business in London. Then he was called away to Galway to take part in an election. But his wife was left. And uh, for three months, his wife was left in a city, we're told, Paris, a city of the greatest luxury. And the city was caught up, swept up in the excitement of the French Revolution. In Martin's absence, Eliza, we're told, perhaps understandably, sought the protection from the dramatic events around her. She found solace in the arms of John Petrie, a merchant. So there must have been times when Martin regretted not putting a pistol ball through Petrie's heart. Although it is unlikely <laughs> Martin is reputed to have fought a hundred duels by sword uh, or by his preference, which was pistols at 10 paces. And sometimes they fought with two pistols. I mean, absolutely outrageous. But he wasn't called Hair Trigger Dick for nothing. But now, chastened as he was, poor Martin, he returned to Connemara and he soon recovered his former ebullient self, you could say. And he eventually was to remarry. He remarried the novelist Harriet Evans and they had three children. But, you know, immediately then... Uh, following on his court case was the Irish Rebellion of 1798 and the emergence of Theobald Wolfe Tone as one of its leaders. Tone, as we remember, was a tutor of Martin's children at Dangan House. And uh, he had appeared on stage in Kerwin's Lane with Eliza and himself. And Martin, of course, now had suspicions that his eldest child, Letitia, could have been the result of an affair between Eliza and Tone. I'll come back to that in a moment. Anyway, the, the, the outcome, yeah. one of the outcomes of the 1798 rebellion was the controversial act of union when the Irish parliament in Dublin was subsumed into Westminster and that became the one parliament of the United Kingdom in Ireland. But it did give Martin a bigger audience. 
And as a member for Galway and a Protestant, he was outspoken in his demand for the rights of Catholics to be elected to the Parliament. He was universally popular in London and in the Parliament. He was noted for his interruptions and humorous speeches. But, you know, he's probably best known for his campaign against animal cruelty. And uh, he sensed at that time a growing groundswell of public disquiet against bear baiting and dog fighting, which were public sports, and the crude herding of animals through the streets of London to be slaughtered at Smithfield. And after various attempts and lots of failures, the Martin Act of 1822 and subsequent bills became the first animal welfare legislation in recorded history. And poor Martin was lampooned and he was pictured in cartoons with donkey's ears. But King George, when he met him, referred to him affectionately as humanity Dick. But in the meantime, Martin's was lord, lording it about in London and enjoying the success of his bill. But, you know, his debts continued to mount. And most of his 200,000 acres in Connemara were mountain bog and water. But the Martins were regarded as good landlords. They, they didn't really chase after their tenants for rent. Uh, he could have done what some other landlords did, push up the rent to try and make some money, but he didn't. The only source of revenue really was his salmon fisheries and the oyster beds along the coast. But anyway, that was his major problem. And even though his debts were huge, Tom, he enjoyed immunity from arrest for debt as long as he was elected a member of parliament. And this was becoming increasingly difficult for Martin because the powerful marquises of Clonricard and Sligo began to sponsor candidates against him. And Clan Ricard had deep pockets, of course, from the east side of the county, and he could mount impressive canvases, whereas Martin had little or no funds for his canvas, but he had yeah. other tricks. And it, there's a famous election. I have written about it before, actually, of 1826, when Martin stood up against uh, a candidate that Clan Ricard had put up, and Martin had no money. But he called on his tenants in Connemara to come to his aid. And the boats piled into Wood Quay. And I think you have a painting, or we saw a painting once of these large boats coming into Wood Quay, filled with his tenants. And they went through the town drinking whiskey, stirring up riots, and really blatant intimidation, I'm afraid, of Clan Ricard's candidate, chasing out of town not only Martin's supporters and, and his opponents, but uh, anybody who, who dared stand against them. So there was rioting in the town for this election. And of course, Martin was duly elected, swept into the, the seat once again. But I'm afraid Clan Ricard was a powerful man. Uh, he was furious at what Martin had done. He uh, petitioned Parliament to investigate on the fairness of the election. And Martin was, of course, found to have not only instigated the rioting, but in fact, his cousin, uh, James Martin, who was the high sheriff, had failed because Martin persuaded him not to take any action against the rioters or his tenants. So Martin was stripped of his membership of parliament. And just before the creditors pounced, he fled to France, to Boulogne. And he was 80 years of age anyway. He died shortly afterwards. But if, if Martin had thoughts about Wolf Tone, 
Wolf Tone had thoughts about Martin. And Wolf Tone was a proficient diarist and recorder of events in his life. And along with everybody else, Wolf Tone must have followed Martin's criminal conversation case against John Petrie with some interest. Because don't forget, he did live for two years in the Dangan house uh, as a tutor to Martin's children. Uh, Wolf Tone recorded in his diary um, that he was satisfied, of course, this is typical Martin and his usual neglect of his wife. And he actually wrote, I have a quote here, I am satisfied from my own observation and the knowledge of the characters of both parties during my residence for many months in the family that the fault was originally Martin's. But anyway, Wolf Tone would come dramatically to the fore of Irish life um, during the 1798. Uh, he was captured, actually, after a furious six-hour sea battle off the Donegal coast when he was bringing over uh, 3,000 Frenchmen to help the 1798 rebellion. Um, two months before that, this was in October, two months before that, General uh, Humbert landed in Kalala with a thousand men <laughs> after some success in Castlebar. I mean, this was really major stuff. This was, was Napoleon trying to get behind Britain, trying to stir up trouble in Ireland. And of course, he was encouraged by Wolf Tone, who met Napoleon several times to do so. But anyway, Humbert, a thousand men, of course, that was ridiculous. He had uh, some success in Castlebar, but he was soon hunted down. The army was destroyed. Well, it was arrested mainly. They surrendered. And although the French prisoners were treated well and returned to France, the Irish amongst them, including Wolf Tone's brother, Matthew, was hanged. So Wolf Tone was captured after the sea battle. He was brought to Dublin. And I must say, there's so many admirable things about Wolf Tone, but one that I enjoyed was that he never lost his flair for theatricality. And as his court-martial in Dublin, he appeared in full French officer uniform of the Armée des Sombres et Muses of the French army. And he requested death by a firing squad, but that was denied him. He was to be hanged. But the poor man, anyway, he was found with self-inflicted wounds in his cell and he died. Aged 35 years, Tom. He was only 35. Sad, yes, sad, yeah. It is really extraordinary. He had a magnificent life dedicated to this united Ireland, united in Protestant and Catholic together. Yes. Wrenching, right. wrenching yeah. independence from Britain. But anyway, the person really who was, who was, you know, was, what should I say, was, was certainly a part of the lives of both Martin and Wolf Tone, Elizabeth Vesey, alias Martin. She did not disappear from history as many of us thought. Um, Dr. Hugh Carey tells us, in fact, that Eliza and John Petrie were, were actually married about two years after the divorce from Richard Martin. They had three children, the eldest of whom, Emily, was born in February 1792, and she was mentioned in the criminal conversation case where someone remarked that they thought she looked pregnant. She was indeed pregnant with her eldest child, with John Petrie, Emily. There was a son, John, who died at 11 months and is commemorated on a memorial inscription near the family vault in the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, Lewisham in Kent. 
In addition, the couple had at least one other daughter, Harriet Jane Gilbert. Now, John Petrie himself died in 1826. He was a widower, in fact, when he began courting Eliza. His first wife also uh, rests in the family vault. Eliza herself died in 1829. And her last will and testament survives. Dr. Hugh Hare has done a wonderful job here investigating this to prove that far from being an opportunistic coup de foudre between herself and John Petrie, born on the Libertine Boulevard's revolutionary Paris, Mrs. Martin's relationship with John Petrie rose above the scandal and survived the vicissitudes of time and family life to last for 36 years. In her will, Eliza expressly requests that her remains be, quote, to be laid by the side of my ever to be revered and my beloved husband in our family vault in the church of Lewisham, Kent. It wasn't as, as uh, Hugh tells us, just, uh, you know, a fling. This was a serious love affair that led to lasting marriage. But um, the will also shows that Eliza maintained some degree of contact with her first family. Part of the estate refers to a part of her will refers to a repayment of unsecured loans to Letitia Martin. The, and Letitia was the eldest daughter of Richard and herself and Elizabeth. Now, Letitia was born in February 1785. And perhaps because Martin himself was in England until the previous July, it was regarded as a very premature birth. However, Hugh tells us that Martin's biographer's note also alluded to the suspicions that Theobald Wolfe Tone, who lived in the family at Dangan near Galway City, may indeed have been Letitia's real father. And the premature birth was a kind of a cover-up to, <laughs> to make the time, the nine months, um, you know, pass a little bit quicker. And Martin never suspected, of course, until... Eliza des, uh, eloped, and then he had his suspicions. But that's all we know about her. Wonderful bit of detective work to track down her life after that extraordinary criminal conversation case. And, you know, I, I want to leave the story there. I'm not quite finished with the Martins because there is an extraordinary um, final uh, scene to be played out as debts uh, on the estate grow ever, uh, ever massive and uh, impossible to repay. In fact, the Martins uh, do find a savior, not in another man, but in a woman, uh, Martin's granddaughter, Mary, an extraordinary young woman who takes on the debts of the estate and really is a remarkable story, and I would like to tell her story in the next few weeks, Tom. But other than that, Hopefully. the main characters to one side. Hopefully. So that's it. That's the end of Martin and Eliza, and of Wolf Tone, I'm afraid. But uh, I will take up the story of Mary in the weeks to come. So that's me. That's what I'm going to do this week. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to that now, Ronnie. All right. Well done. Well done. I'm your grace. Okay. Take care, Tom. Talk to you. Talk to I you. Will. Take care. Bye bye.